0: Bridgebank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. Bridgebank, a division of Western Alliance Bank, Bridgebank. Be Bold, venture wisely.
1: Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's hey podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mindshift, Right Nowish and more all tell the stories of the bay and beyond
3: From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. Today on our show, home and history and what it means to have deep roots here in the Golden State.
1: My grandfather came in 1881. He was the 11 year old boy, a laborer, who was brought over by
0: his uncle. I find it fascinating when people think that no one's ever from California, but so many of us who are from this place have known each other for generations.
3: We'll head to San Jose to find out why that city, which has had five Chinatowns throughout its history, doesn't have one today. But first, we're going to meet a novelist from the Inland Empire who's long celebrated the hidden stories of the people in her hometown. Susan Strait is a professor of creative writing at UC Riverside, and she also grew up in Riverside. Her new book, Mecca, is a story of intertwined characters who all have deep roots in the mountains, deserts, and canyons near Riverside and Coachella, and who are each in their own ways looking for a version of the California dream. Susan, welcome. It's so great to have you back on the California
0: Report. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you.
3: One of the main characters in this book is Johnny Frias. And his family, like a lot of the characters in this book, has really deep roots in California. He's descended both from indigenous ancestors who were Yuma and from some of the first Spaniards who came during the conquest of what we now know of as Southern California. Johnny is also a CHP officer. And some of the most lyrical parts of this book are passages where you describe him on the freeway and some of the geography he's passing while he's
0: riding his motorcycle. The wind started up at 3 a.m., the same way it had for hundreds of years, the same way I used to hear the blowing so hard around our little house in the canyon that the loose windowsills sounded like harmonicas. The old metal weather stripping played like the gods pressed their mouths around the screens in the living room, where I slept when I was growing up. After I got off work this morning, the wind took a break and I was knocked out for a few hours, waking up to hear Rose Sotelo's radio next door playing ranchera music, tubas and trumpets thumping against the stucco, her canaries worried in their little songs. But now that I was back on ship, the Harley was pushing hard against the biggest gusts, the Santa Anas blowing crazier than ever, the way they always did in the afternoons, fierce from the nap, Brazilian pepper trees, the ones that grew in every vacant lot or frontage road area along the 91 and the 55 freeways, had those long branches like ferns or seaweed, and when the wind blew them sideways like skirts, I could see homeless encampments under a lot of the trees. A Thursday in October, Santa Ana winds, 94 degrees, fire weather. Well, it's pretty complicated
3: to write a story about a cop these days, um, you know, given our political climate and given what's happened with police brutality. But Johnny's interesting because he not only has a badge and a gun, but he also faces deep racism from some of the people he pulls over, from some of the white officers that he trained with. And, you know, other folks in this book are victims of police brutality. What made you want to focus on a CHP officer?
0: One of the things I think was the most interesting and the hardest was to think about how a character like Johnny Frias echoes all the guys I grew up with who were black correctional officers or Mexican-American patrolmen and the racism that they get from all sides. And I just kept thinking about Johnny Frias hearing, you know, why don't you go back to Mexico? And he's literally seventh generation from California. And I also wanted to write about what it's like to speak Spanish and speak English and have to learn that, that language in between, which is really called speaking American. So I think Johnny's fascinated by language. He's fascinated by what people see when they see him. And yet it's his job, as happens in the book, to come upon someone who's died in a roadside accident and have to sit and take care of that body until someone arrives. It's a really hard job to do. And I wanted to write about it for the last 10 years.
3: You know, your characters are so vivid and, you know, you really get a sense of their inner lives reading this book. Do you base a lot of the folks you write about on friends, neighbors, people you grew up with?
0: Well, I've lived in the same neighborhood for my whole life. I was born in Riverside. I live three blocks from the hospital where I was born and I've lived in the same house for 33 years and um, I still see people I went to kindergarten with, you know, every day, if I'm, I play darts at the Elks Lodge and someone during darts league will tell me a story um, about the first time that um, they were a police dispatcher and got a call and it was for a terrible double suicide and that their son was the police officer sent out on that call. So stories like that happen all the time.
3: Another character in this book is Dante, who is a teenager, and his mom is a nurse who's holed up basically in an RV near the hospital during the COVID pandemic. You know, as another Californian who can trace his ancestry way back, um, his dad's great grandma came with the Mormons and their wagons in the 1850s, and she was a black slave Who walked behind those wagons, and I just love the descriptions of you know how Dante loves the darkness and looking
0: at the stars and meteor showers. Dante is one of my favorite characters I've ever written, and I started uh, the chapter with Dante, maybe about eight years ago. I was thinking about Dante as being one of those great you know intellectual young kids who has to be obsessed with something, and he's obsessed with the with the galaxies, and. As I was writing this, um, that is when COVID really hit hard. And a lot of my neighbors are nurses. There's three nurses on my block and three nurses on the next block. So as I was working on this story about Dante, um, I realized that his mom, Lorette, who was a nurse, would probably have to go stay in one of those RVs so she wouldn't bring the virus home to Dante or his dad. And so I realized he was even more lonely because his father's working as an animal control officer, during the day, and his mom's um, now staying in the RV. And I was thinking about all the kids I know that got left alone who were 14 and 15 during COVID. So I'm going to read to you a little bit from Dante. Dante was supposed to keep a quarantine journal, according to his teacher. Manny and Montrell had texted him, F that, a diary is for girls. But Dante laughed. He tried to write in his extra notebook, the one his mother had brought from Rite Aid when school stopped back in March. He was alone for at least four hours a day now, mostly at night, since his mother had to stay in an RV somebody had donated for nurses to live near the hospital because she couldn't come home or she'd bring the virus to him and his father. He imagined it, coating her, the people coughing and the respirators that she said pushed clouds of droplets into the air by the beds. The emergency room full of mist carrying the virus they always showed on TV like stupid blue and red rubber toys floating around. There were five trailers now parked on a dead-end street near St. Bernardine's. His mother's had a Dodger flag in the window. He and his father had left a bag with clean clothes for her yesterday at the curb. No one touched her old Honda Accord. She called it the plague wagon.
3: This book sets all of these characters against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Santa Ana winds, wildfire, drought. I mean, these are things that affect all Californians, but the people you write about really face them head-on because they're frontline workers, they're first responders, they're nurses or housekeepers for the wealthy. How did you think about weaving their stories together?
0: Interestingly enough, even though I live in such a big place, I mean, the Inland Empire... It's 4 million people at this point. But yet, I know how interconnected we all are. Like, I know so many people in Coachella from traveling there for so many years. And I know people in San Bernardino. And last, you know, just last Saturday, we had a big party for my friend Lily, who's from Pomona. And we were at the Elks Lodge, and everyone was from Pomona, Paris, San Bernardino, L.A. We've all known each other for years. We all dance to the same music. I find it fascinating when people think that no one's ever from California, but so many of us who are from this place have known each other for generations. And that's kind of what I was operating with in this book, is that sort of hidden California that's not hidden to us.
3: Well, the LA Times calls you the bard of overlooked California, which I love, because so many of your books, you know, explore the lives of working class folks and folks who don't usually appear in the stereotypes and the tropes about our state. But I want to ask you, you know, as a white woman writing this story about race and identity and power, how do you position yourself and how do you check against
0: your own privilege or bias? I think the weirdest part about being me is that I'm this tiny, invisible woman who moves through all these different worlds. But because I've always lived in the same place, this some of the stories that are in this book were told to me when I was 15 years old or 14 years old. And some were told to me you know, last year while I was writing. And so I don't think anyone thinks of me as anything anymore, but this person who listens to them on the porch or in the car. And so that's it's kind of an odd way to move through the world, but my kids say, you know, mom is really weird because her job is to make people cry by telling the stories no one else wants to hear. And my daughters are, are young black women who live now in Austin, Texas, uh, South Pasadena, and my middle daughter um, lives in Harlem right now. And so when they come home, they're always fascinated by the fact that maybe thirty people a day move through our household or are on the porch, and So my function, I think, is more of the listener and also to be the only writer. People come to my house and say, I want you to write this down because no one else will ever, ever listen to me tell this story. So I guess my luck and fortune is to be the person that everyone tells their life story to. And my job, I think, on this, my ninth book, is I realized that my job is to represent my place. And my place, it only contains people like this.
3: Well, another character who's very attentive to language in this novel is Ximena. Her native language is Mixteco. She's also learning Spanish and trying to figure out English. Tell us about her.
0: Ximena came from a, a few of the young women I met out in Coachella years ago who were house cleaners. Um, I cleaned houses when I was younger. That was one of my jobs. And my mom and I cleaned apartment buildings. So I sort of thought about Ximena in a way as somebody who was trying to move through the world, learning two new languages. And also she's just crossed the border and that was very traumatic. And her story, Sasha, is a story that was told to me many times. I have a friend who crossed the border and swam across the river and his brother um, drowned and floated away from him. And I've known him for 26 years and he's still unable to talk about it. It had to be Simena's story. So yeah, Simena crosses the border and She's living in a mobile home park in in Mecca, and she's working at a medispa. spa. Um, I saw a place like this, and um, I was just fascinated by watching all the layers of people who were there. So she is a house cleaner at this medi spa, where very wealthy women come to get procedures done. Every day except Sunday, Imena cleaned numbers seven through twelve. Señora Luz held the clipboard and told Jimena which of the cottages were empty, which needed extra service, and which women had complained if she knocked or entered. For two days, Do Not Enter had hung on number 12, the last cottage. When she listened at the window, Jimena had heard a lone, loud cricket inside, screeching in rhythm, even in the daytime. Crickets got confused in the dark, and the shades were pulled tightly On television voices and the roar of air conditioning. Now she dumped the wet towels from number nine into her laundry cart. Since Tuesday, number nine's thick white cotton had been marked with the particular pink of blood lightened by bathwater. Sometimes the towels had maroon markings of pure dried blood, sometimes just a trace. Number nine had been a pupa in the bed, sleeping in the humming cool darkness and now she was gone. She had been only lips, eyes, cheeks, chin, and neck, not boobs. The finished women left by 11 a.m., and the new women came after three or four when their surgeries were done. Some of them didn't care while Jimena moved about. They lay in bed watching television, holding their phones, talking on Bluetooth with things inserted into their ears or tiny white capsules near their puffy lips.
3: There's so much inequality and and so much tragedy in this novel. But Susan, it's also a really deep story about community and survival and friendship. What hope do you want people to take away from reading this book?
0: I think for me, I'd love people to take away the idea that California as home is not a construct. It's a place where every day, you know, in my neighborhood— Everyone offers each other food. Everyone stands out on the sidewalk and talks. We all watch each other's kids. We all fix each other's cars. I couldn't imagine living any place but my neighborhood. And you wouldn't think it to look at it, but this place feels like home.
3: Susan Strait, thank you so much for being with us on The California Report.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Susan Strait is the author of the new novel, Mecca. So much of Susan Strait's work is about people finding home and building community. But what if the community you're trying to build keeps getting destroyed? Our next story takes us to San Jose, which has actually had five Chinatowns throughout its history. But why isn't there a Chinatown in San Jose today? KQED's Silicon Valley reporter Aditi
4: Bandlamudi tried to find out. To answer this question, I had to first understand why San Jose had so many Chinatowns to begin with. We have to go back to the mid-1800s, around the time of the gold rush. Thousands of immigrants came from all over the world looking for gold, including many from China.
2: So many of those Chinese immigrants that came were working class.
4: That's James Lai, a professor of ethnic studies at Santa Clara University.
2: And they came for the same reason why they still come to this very good day, for economic opportunity.
4: James says that a lot of them found work in mines or on the Transcontinental Railroad.
2: And those were often short-term contracts that they were being paid to come. Room and board and transportation would be provided.
4: When those contracts were up, many of those men were on their own to find more work. Some went to San Francisco and opened laundromats and other businesses. Some built levees throughout the Sacramento Delta. And some began working in agriculture, picking the orchards in the Santa Clara Valley.
2: The ratio was roughly 26 to 1, Chinese-American men to women at this point in time. And they were sending money back uh, to help family back home, but they weren't wealthy. They, they, they never achieved the wealth that they hoped they would achieve, then to be able to return back to their villages and retire or help their families. So they stayed and they endured.
4: Racist policies kept them from owning property, and white people didn't want them in their neighborhoods. So in the 1860s in San Jose, they built the first Market Street Chinatown. That first Chinatown lasted until 1870, and then the Vine Street Chinatown was built and thrived from 1870 to 1872. Both of these Chinatowns were burned down. From the moment Chinese immigrants started coming to America, they faced racism and violence, but they kept rebuilding. There really wasn't a choice.
2: It was just simply to to continue to try to plant your roots. And the only way you could do it was through these kinds of Chinatowns.
4: And the community was growing fast. By the time the third Chinatown was built, there were more than 1,400 people who lived there. It was called the Second Market Street Chinatown it was much bigger than the ones that came before it. There were shops, three restaurants, a theater, and a temple. The people who lived there worked in factories, manufacturing cigars, shoes, clothing, and furniture. Connie Young Yu is a local historian.
1: My grandfather came in 1881. He was the 11-year-old boy, a laborer, who was brought over by his uncle. Who had been living in San Jose since the 1860s. America was called Gumson Gold Mountain. His uncle was telling him about this, you know, beautiful area where you can work hard and there were good wages in Gumsan.
4: After arriving in San Jose, he worked at his uncle's shop where many laborers came to eat, play cards and send money back
1: home. In those days, there was child labor. So he worked in the store. He helped stock. He was like a janitor and he helped serve food to the workers when they came.
4: Eventually, he landed a job as a houseboy for a white family outside of Chinatown, and it was there where he was exposed to racial violence for the first time.
1: When he would go back to the Market Street Chinatown, he'd have to run really fast because white kids would be throwing rocks at him. So this was a vivid memory he passed down to us kids.
5: The anti-Chinese movement had been building throughout the Western United States for about 20 years at that point.
4: Barbara Voss is a historical archaeologist at Stanford, and she says it's not surprising that Young faced
5: racial violence in San Jose. The first documented and verified act of anti-Chinese violence that I'm aware of was in 1869 when the first Methodist Episcopal Church, which was a largely white church but that had a Sunday, a Sunday school for Chinese children and did uh, missionary work to the Chinese, was burned down in an arson fire. At this point, California had already enacted legislation that targeted
4: these immigrants, from the foreign miners' tax to morality laws which kept Chinese women out. And then, in 1882, Congress passed the nation's most restrictive immigration bill, the Chinese Exclusion Act. It prohibited all Chinese laborers from immigrating to the U.S. and prevented those that were here from becoming citizens. This discrimination, coming from federal and local governments, set the scene for San Jose to host California's first anti-Chinese convention in 1886.
5: Here's Barbara. There were motivational speakers who were chanting racist slogans, arguing that the Chinese must go, making arguments about why white people were superior to Chinese people, making arguments about what they perceived as the negative impact of Chinese immigrants and Chinese Americans on the economy of San Jose. Barbara says there are echoes of that language today. You might substitute some words, but the arguments are very, very similar about taking jobs from white people or taking jobs from Americans, depressing wages, all those kinds of things. She says the rally drew attendees from all over the state. The anti-Chinese movement in San Jose was as much about local boosterism as it was about racism. And in fact, those two things were seen as going together. The leaders of this movement felt that they could not promote San Jose as a place for business development and settlement if the Chinatown remained in downtown. A year after the convention,
4: the San Jose Mercury News featured front-page testimony from city leaders. Everyone, from the fire and police chiefs, to the street commissioner, to the mayor, had one message, Chinatown must go.
2: It was of their opinion that the general condition of the locality in a sanitary point of view could not be worse, and in an aesthetic or moral sense, it was revolting. The filth that has been accumulating for years is so thoroughly saturated under the walks and under the buildings. Gambling, smoking, and prostitution is carried on extensively and in a manner that renders it difficult to detect or convict.
4: No surprise, Mayor Charles Brayfogle and the city council voted unanimously to get rid of the 2nd Market Street Chinatown. But before any official action was taken, the 2nd Market Street Chinatown also burnt down. That made it the 3rd San Jose Chinatown to succumb to arson. Before the fire, Chinese residents had already started moving out of San Jose. After the fire, even more left.
1: Here's Connie Yu. My grandfather fled to San Francisco, and he didn't come back for 10 years. This community would rebuild again
4: with the help of another immigrant, a farmer named John Heinlein.
1: He's a landowner. He came from Württemberg, Germany, when he was like three years old.
4: According to Connie, Heinlein and his family faced anti-German discrimination while living in the Midwest.
1: He had hired Chinese before. He leased land to the Chinese in his other holdings, like in Fresno in Kings County.
4: A few months after the fire, news broke that Heinlein had leased some of his land to Chinese residents who had lost their homes and land. He was gonna build a new Chinatown.
1: There was such an uproar among the citizens, including City Hall, the mayor, and uh, they said, down with John Heinlein, you know, he's a traitor to his people. You know, Chinatown's a blight on our population, and here he wants to rent to, to lease land to the Chinese.
4: Despite receiving death threats, Heinlein finished construction in 1887, just months after the fire that destroyed the last Chinatown. Angry locals called the new community Heinleinville. Here's Connie Yu again.
1: They couldn't drive out Chinatown. Chinatown was there to stay. And John Heinlein, actually, to protect the Chinese, he built a, an eight-foot-high fence. The fence had a gate which was locked every night while
4: foot patrols provided security. Eventually, Connie's grandfather became a partner at one
1: of the shops in Heinlandville and was able to settle in San Jose. Heinland gave him a chance for a new life in San Jose. He was a merchant, and there was able to, to send for his wife in, in China.
4: He had been separated from his wife for
1: 14 years. She came over, and in 1910, they had their first son, my uncle Ming Yang, and then two years later, in June... Um, 1912, my father was born.
4: Connie says Heinleinville was a thriving community. About 2,000 people lived there. Newspaper accounts say the New Shingum Temple was the center of the community. A two-story structure, it featured a bright red door and gold pillars on the top. The upper floor housed an intricately carved and gilded altar. The lower floor was used as a town hall and as a Chinese school for the kids who grew up in Heinleinville. Connie
1: shows me some old newspaper articles from back then. January 25th, 1914. And it shows that by this time, Chinatown had some respect. The article is from the San Jose
4: Mercury Herald. The headline, Chinatown Celebrates New Year.
1: The article mentions, you know, how elaborate the festival was and how beautifully the streets were and mentioned that my grandfather was one of the men that were decorating the street. So it showed something that Chinatown was established and people realized that it was going to be part of San Jose. And it was for 44 years. Heinleinville
4: was San Jose's longest established Chinatown, until 1931. The Chinese Exclusion Act had been in place for almost 50 years. And because people couldn't come into the country easily, immigration dwindled. Soon, there weren't enough people left in Chinatown to keep it alive. And the Great Depression took a real toll on the Heinlein estate, which owned the land the Chinatown stood on. In 1931, it went bankrupt, and eventually, Heinleinville became city property and was demolished. When I first started working on this story, I wanted to find exactly where Heinleinville once stood. But walking around near Japantown, I wasn't able to find anything that marked this rich history but that's gonna change soon. Connie Young-Yu has been working with the city to build a park where the last Chinatown was built. She says it'll commemorate Heinlein's contributions to San Jose and highlight the history of Chinatown and the deep roots of the Chinese community here. It's going to be called Heinleinville Park. For the California Report, I'm Aditi Bandlamudi in San Jose.
3: that this story was originally produced by our friends at KQED's Bay Curious podcast. And after this story first aired on Bay Curious, it had a big impact. The city of San Jose passed a resolution last October apologizing to its Chinese-American community for past injustices. At least three other California cities, Antioch, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, have also issued similar apologies in the last year the california report magazine is a production of kqed public radio in san francisco our senior editor is victoria Mao leon Susie racho is our producer director and brendan willard is our sound engineer our team also includes amanda font and izzy bloom and i'm sasha Coca. thanks so much for listening this is the california report magazine your state your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures. Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast. And I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99.